episode 338 of the Bowery Boys, The New Deal, part two, putting artists back to work. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And welcome to part two of our mini-series on the New Deal in New York, or how the federal government stepped in to put the nation back to work during the darkest days of the Great Depression. In last week's show, we talked about really big projects. Um, We talked about infrastructure and parks and bridges. But today we're going to turn to the arts, because believe it or not, during the Great Depression, the federal government took the position that American artists also deserved to earn a decent living. (laughs) They did. Uh, In that previous show, we discussed how many of New York's WPA projects were conceived of and pushed through by the city's powerful parks commissioner and the head of the Triborough Bridge Authority, our old friend, foe, Robert Moses. Yes, and those projects um, from renovating every park in the city to building LaGuardia Airport put hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers back to work. And that really was the point of the Works Progress Administration, to put people back to work and let them earn a respectable living. Today, though, we're going to explore another program within the WPA, a program called Federal Project Number 1, which was intended to put artists back to work. And as we'll be discussing, this includes all kinds of artists, from painters to singers to instrumentalists Mm -hmm. to even puppeteers. Puppeteers need to eat too, Greg. (laughs) They do. This was a program with no strings attached. (laughs) But the best part is the project worked, uh, which is especially interesting for us today, given that Broadway and performance venues and museums and other other art spaces in the city have been closed for many months. Um, although some are just now, fortunately, beginning to carefully reopen their doors. Mm-hmm. So hopefully today we're able to take some lessons from the program that we were about to discuss, the federal project number one. So take a seat as we witness the drama and successes of federal project number one and how the government put artists back to work. Within the few glittering blocks of Broadway's theatrical district has centered in recent years all that mattered of the American theater. But today, from one end of the land to another, something is astir in the nation's playhouses. For the U.S. government is bringing the living stage back to hundreds of communities where no flesh and blood actor has appeared for a full generation. Oh, hey, can you sing, dance, or act if you can? It's a well-established act that Uncle Sam will take you in, break you in, make you in, to anything you could desire. Uncle Sam, he wants to hire actors with dramatic fire, singers who to fame aspire, dancers who can kick but hire. Uncle Sam will take a flyer, which is why we all inquire. Say, can you sing, dance, or act? What was that zany piece of music? Was that? Did they just say, uh, uh, oh, say, can you sing? Oh, oh, say, can you sing, dance, or act, Greg? (laughs) 
<laughs> Can you imagine the alternate universe where that's our national anthem? <laughs> Sometimes I do. I think I would like to live in that country. Ladies and gentlemen, President Patty Lapone. <laughs> no, we will we will get to that clip the, to the, to that news reel in just a second when we talk about the theater okay. project. Now, in last week's show, we opened our story in the early years of the Great Depression, following a devastating stock market crash in 1929. Now, by the year 1933, the new president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he had swept into office and immediately began working with Congress to produce a series of massive relief programs and regulations that together are referred to today as the New Deal. Now, in that packet of programs were included various back-to-work initiatives that employed out-of-work Americans in the construction of public work projects. In 1935, those programs then were folded into a new agency called the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA. But there was another group of people who were left out of those jobs. And those people were of the creative class, the artists, the musicians, the theater directors, the painters. A great many of these people were also unemployed. But the WPA would sweep in and take care of them as well, using an agency called Federal Project Number 1, or in short, Federal 1. And the WPA did also put white-collar professionals back to work accountants and lawyers and teachers in various other programs, but putting artists back to work. There is something, there's something really interesting about that idea that's, it's still, maybe we're just not used to government subsidized art. Well, it's a radical idea to be sure. If even now, it was an idea that was actually formulated by Harry Hopkins, who I mentioned in the prior show was the head of the WPA and a man that was trained in the settlement house scene in New York City. So Federal One, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today, was created in July of 1935 and would operate much differently than a lot of these other New Deal programs, which were all centralized in Washington, D.C. That's where you went if you wanted to influence anyone in these New Deal programs. But the federal one... And how did they break it down? Um, two different ways. They, first of all, divided it by artistic medium. So today we'll be talking about the Federal Music Project, the Federal Theater Project, the Federal Art Project, and the Federal Writers Project. Not only were these divided by the kind of art form, they were also governed centrally, but also divided into regions of the United States. So it would have each program would have a kind of like regional infrastructure in how different kinds of pieces of art were commissioned. Hmm. So they were breaking down the administration into these regional offices and encouraging the artists to go out and explore the distinctly American forms of art that were already out there. Mm-hmm. And amplifying those voices, right? Now, that is very different, obviously, than employing people to build a bridge or a dam. Different skill set. Very much. I mean, painting a mural or writing a play or a symphony, you know, comes from a unique talent, a very a personal experience. And we're talking a country here with just a few cities that were very rich in cultural resources and a vast country 
that had a potential for making those, but didn't really have uh, much of an outlet or a motivation to encourage that kind of art making. To quote from the head of the Federal Art Project, Holter Cahill, in talking about the project in general, quote, the project has discovered that such a simple matter as finding employment for the artist in his hometown has been of the greatest importance. It has helped to stem the cultural erosion which in the past two decades has drawn most of America's art talent to a few large cities. It has brought the artist closer to the interests of a public which needs him and which is now learning to understand him or her. I'm adding that. And it has made the artist more responsive to the inspiration of the country. And through this, the artist is bringing every aspect of American life into the currency of art. So then this program, this federal project number one, was really revolutionary in, in terms of how the American government was supporting this kind of artistic endeavor and exploration of American art. Yeah, I mean, this is a true cultural revolution here. In fact, in its first year of existence, the program would fund over 40,000 creators throughout the United States. Federal One is the most important cultural event to take place in the first half of the 20th century, possibly with the exception of the debut of the motion picture and the debut of radio. That is, that's quite a statement. Yeah, I mean, it was it was that important to kind of the American cultural voice. So as a general statement here, as we go forward looking at New York and the federal project, just keep two things in mind here. Unlike last week, where we talked about New York's dominance in acquiring funds for the New Deal, the Federal One Project would have equally as great, if not greater, influence across the country in in various regions and small towns, right? And number two, although this would be a much smaller program in scope, and this funding would, of course, be dwarfed by those infrastructure projects, of course, Federal One would be a much more visible program for most Americans. And the results of that federal spending would be seen more immediately. Because people in towns across the country, as they saw a new mural go up or uh, per perhaps took in a free performance of some sort, yeah. were able to really quickly appreciate the output of the participants in this project. Yeah, I mean, there was like an immediate um, visceral satisfaction or disgust, depending on, you know, what you what you thought of that particular piece. As a result, of course a lot of these programs would also be controversial. Yes, they would be. And we'll get to the controversy in a second. So where do we, where do we even begin? You said we're, we're talking about four of these projects. Yes, uh, we're going to begin with the Federal Music Project, led by the Russian-born Cleveland Orchestra conductor Nikolai Sokolov. Now, the Music Project had a couple main purposes here. And I think you'll see these reflected in the other programs. Number one, it was to encourage music education, using out-of-work musicians and instructors to educate people across the country about music. Number two, it wasn't just to educate, it was also meant to lift the spirits mm. of Americans and entertain them during this very dark period in American history. 
which was which was the goal of all of these arts programs. Everybody's spirits yes. here in the depression needed to be lifted. <laughs> and that was done with thousands of musical concerts over the course of several years, employing tens of thousands of musicians to form orchestras and choirs and to perform at low cost or even no cost. Mm-hmm. And then finally, a third aspect was to document and, if possible, record regional music from Creole to Appalachian to indigenous music and even spirituals and songs from the years of slavery mm-hmm. in this country. So performing, but also archiving. Um, they were kind of like mm-hmm. musical anthropologists trying to take a sort of snapshot of what American music even was. But again, just to underscore that the the, the real point of all of these projects was to get artists back to work. So here, mm-hmm. the main goal was to get unemployed musicians working again. Yeah, I mean, to be clinical, create tasks that these out-of-work musicians would excel in mm-hmm. and put them into those functions for the betterment of American culture. So this might have been playing out around the country, but then how does that how did that translate to New York? I mean, there were so many musicians living in New York and working in New York in in concert halls, in music schools, in public schools, in in Broadway theaters. How how would they even start to put them all back to work? Yeah, New York was a cultural mecca. Broadway, jazz clubs, you name it. But even those employed musicians were having a real struggle because hundreds of thousands of people in the city were struggling to make ends meet. There were still concerts and operas and Broadway performances, but those performances cost money to make and, of course, cost money to attend. Mm -hmm. So audiences were shrinking, um, Mm -hmm. creating less demand for new shows, which would lead to more unemployed musicians. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't just professional musicians out of work either here. In 1936, LaGuardia had also put street musicians out of a job, making street busking illegal. Oh. On top of all of that, you have the rising popularity of recorded music Mm -hmm. and the rise of radio, which, of course, brought live performances into your home so you didn't necessarily have to go out and spend money on them. Yeah, unless you were one of the lucky musicians who who got employed by one of the radio networks, you know, you had fewer gigs. Did the WPA get into radio? Uh, they certainly did. They actually funded dozens of local ensembles, choirs, brass bands, and a lot of those musicians then performed live on local WNYC. By 1936, almost half the total programming on our local public radio station, WNYC, almost half of the total programming was the broadcast of live acts funded by the WPA. Tom, here's one particular example of a broadcast from WNYC, one featuring a children's orchestra. The Works Progress Administration presents a program by the Federal Music Project under the direction of Dr. Nikolai Sokolov. Today, we bring you a children's orchestra. The youngest child here in the studio is eight, and the oldest only 16. All of these children were trained by Vincenzo Palladino, 
a teacher of the Federal Music Project. This is part of the work of the educational department which is under the direction of Mrs. Frances McFarland. None of the children ever played a musical instrument before they received this free musical instruction. Their first number is Serenata by Guno. That is so cool. I love hearing a children's orchestra. Um, and, on, uh-huh. and on WNYC, how, how sweet. It's remarkable. So New Yorkers literally did not even need to leave, the, leave their home in order to take in a WPA arts program. Um, wow. They could just, well, they needed to have a radio. Um, but, but if they, <laughs> they had did, a radio, yes. they could take it in for free. Yeah, but, you know, there were free concerts. I mean, they were free concerts all over the city during this period. Big concerts, small concerts, all funded by the WPA from Harlem to the Educational Alliance down in the Lower East Side mm-hmm. by your old apartment. By your there old was apartment. Even, by our old apartments. Um, <laughs> there, was, there was even a composer's forum, which was sort of like the upper end of art programming here, which debuted weekly performances in 1935. And this focused on American composers of symphonic work, classical music. And a little bit later in the show, we'll play a sample of some of the music from the composer's forum. One of the busiest performers, though, during this period was not a classical music artist, but a choral artist, an African-American woman named Juanita Hall. Now, Hall taught music in settlement houses, and she came to Broadway. She even had a small role, Tom, in Showboat Mm. on Broadway in 1928. Well, a few years later, in 1936, she formed a small choir called the Juanita Hall Chorus, which performed over 5,000 times in the late 1930s, including on this segment of WNYC. At this time, the Works Progress Administration offers a program by the Negro Melody Singers, a unit of the Federal Music Project under the direction of Dr. Nikolai Sokolov. Miss Juanita Hall, the director and arranger for this group, is widely known for her brilliant work in the field of the Negro spiritual. Our opening selection is familiar to many of you. Way over in Beulah Land. Incidentally, Tom, this is just the start of Hall's career. She would have a long and successful Broadway career lay before her. And in 1950, Juanita Hall became the first African-American to win a Tony Award for her work in South Pacific. How lovely. But when I think music in the 1930s, I typically think of, you know, big band, swing, jazz. Was the WPA also funding this kind of popular music? 
Not at first. One of the initial purposes of the music project was to celebrate higher arts. But that seems to run contrary to this purpose of exploring American identity. I mean, what's more American than than jazz? Right. And these, you know, these criticisms were loud and clear by 1939 when Sokolov was replaced by the musicologist Charles Seeger as the head of the Federal Music Project. And he really opened up the purposes of the program to a more diverse list of music and even more popular music. Charles Seeger? Mm-hmm. Why does that name sound familiar? He was the father of Pete Seeger, who would, of course, echo some of his father's work making Greenwich Village folk music in the 1960s. Who we talked about, we even played some of in our Greenwich Village in the 60s show. Yeah, yeah, he wrote, If I Had a Hammer, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? Classics. Well, Greg, I want to take us now to what may have been the most famous, or perhaps for some the most infamous, of the WPA arts programs, the Federal Theater Project, or the FTP. Mm-hmm. And I should note that many of these arts programs overlapped with one another. Uh, absolutely. I mean, for instance, I just talked about musicians who worked on Broadway. Right, and theater, exactly. And the performing arts businesses, all kinds of performers in the U.S. had been hit already by the time the Depression hit um, because they'd been struggling to compete with the movies, which, by the way, had started talking in 1927. So movies had put stage actors out of business, okay? But talking motion pictures had also put musicians out of business because remember that there used to be live music accompanying the silent movies. Mm, yes. Whether it be just a honky-tonk piano mm-hmm. or even, say, in like Radio City Music Hall, a full orchestra. Also remember that during the first couple of decades of the 20th century, popular entertainment in the U.S. had really been dominated by vaudeville. Thousands of acts that traveled the country performing before audiences in vaudeville houses, but also in small-town opera houses. So by the time the Depression hit, many of those theaters around the country had already been converted into movie theaters, which left thousands of performers unemployed. Although there was a very active theater scene... Here in New York, obviously, Broadway was still lit up producing shows. Yes, although Broadway tickets were still somewhat expensive. Uh, they cost a dollar or two. And, Woo! and I know, those are crazy <laughs> prices. But as employment dried up, as so too did the audiences for those shows. For example, I counted in the, se- the Broadway season of 1930, 251 shows ran on Broadway that year. But by 1937, there were only 143, so about a about a 45% drop in shows on Broadway. I can't imagine over 140 shows on Broadway at once. I'd like to imagine that. I wish that were the case right now. <laughs> That's true. I, but still, my point is 145 by 1937 was a big drop, okay? Oh, okay, right. And if the New York theater scene is taking that kind of a hit, you can just imagine how it's being devastated across the country. Yes, although, you know, many of the people who worked in vaudeville or in those traveling roadshows were based in New York. So the theater community everywhere needed government assistance, but it hit New York City especially hard. 
And this was a point that was made very clearly in a 1937 promotional short film uh, that we played a few minutes ago at the beginning of the segment. It was made for the Federal Theater Program. Um, It's a little bit over the top in describing the good old days for actors and theatrical folk. You know, you see old vaudeville acts and tap dancers performing before cheering crowds. Yeah, everything was great. But then you see the Depression come along and 30,000 show people, quote-unquote, are out of work. But now they were being saved by the Federal Theater Project, now in its second year. To make shift offices at Washington, the New Deal summons director Hallie Flanagan from Vassar College's Experimental Theater. Puts her in charge of a vast new Federal Theater Project, backed by $6,700,000 in government funds. Early steps in the new project's career are the free out-of-door shows on portable stages that travel to city parks and playgrounds. And it's cool because you, in this footage, you actually see Hallie Flanagan at work. And um, Hallie Flanagan, a close friend of Harry Hopkins, had actually come from the Vassar Theater Program Mm -hmm. to then come into this, into Federal One, and to head the Federal Theater Project. Yeah, and here we see her um, at work meeting with directors and show people. They hilariously show some early theatrical missteps, they say, um, showing crowds or sparse crowds of confused-looking spectators. Oh, yeah? What do you know about? But then things improve. Better organization paves the way for better and shrewder production. Gilbert and Sullivan operettas keep their drawing power. Into marionette shows crowd excited youngsters, with oldsters treading on their heels, boosting the marionette into a popularity it has never known before. Among the scripts that pour in on WPA play readers, directors begin finding more and more works of merit with box office appeal. But 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 aside from the marionettes um, finding a popularity that they have never known before, we are we're <laughs> being shown examples, you know, of WPA theater productions that are now hitting it off big with audiences, huge audiences. Into its second year swings the Federal Theater. On its payrolls, close to fifteen hundred costume and scenic designers, directors, supervisors. Some 1,500 technicians of every sort. In 62 cities, about 10,000 actors are playing or rehearsing in smooth professional productions for audiences which number nearly 500,000 every week, from one end of the land to the other. But every week, more and more WPAites are reclaimed by private producers as times steadily improve the show business in the vanguard. Extra, extra, understand going into show business. Read all about it. Extra. What a clever and ingenious little marketing film there, Tom. I, guess, I mean, I guess they had the talent to produce it. That's true. Like they could hire, that's, right? That's true. There was no shortage of talent, unfortunately. But as we heard, mm-hmm. actors and dancers, directors are literally being recruited by the federal government to work for them. Yes, as with other WPA projects, you know, this was an employment project. It was intended to to put theater people back to work. And all in, 15,000 people would be employed by the project in its first year, uh, nearly 5,000 of them in New York City alone. 
including quite notable names of stage and later screen, like Joseph Cotton, Sidney Lumet, Burt Lancaster, Greg. Hmm. But that meant, of course, that about 10,000 of these performers actually worked outside of New York. Yes. Uh, the federal project was headed by Hallie Flanagan, who you mentioned, mm-hmm. and the New York City office, which was located at 44th and 8th Avenue, uh, was run by a producer and playwright named Elmer Rice. And so how did this work exactly? Were they able to just dream up any kind of production that they would want to perform, or did they have to go through some uh, some hoops here? No, it was more structured than that. They set up several units that each produced its own particular genre of, of show, Um, These included the Experimental Theater. There was a group that was focused on African-American theater called the, quote, Negro Theater. Intriguingly, there was a a unit that was devoted to dramatizing current affairs in the day's news. Uh, This was called the, quote, Living Newspaper. Oh, my gosh. It sounds like a sentient being. The living newspaper. (laughs) But wait, there's more. There were Yiddish and German theater troops in New York. There were four vaudeville troops uh, that toured the country. There was there was a group of radio actors. There was a WPA circus. Uh, there were there were groups that did free outdoor performances. There was a light opera group. So what an incredible selection. The New York theater scene must have been quite thrilled with this. Well, out of work performers and other professionals were probably pretty happy to have the work. That's true. Although many producers weren't necessarily thrilled about all of this new competition because oh yeah right. uncle sam you know wasn't really in the theater business to make money the the government was here to just put people to work and that meant that lots of these performances were free or were just incredibly cheap uh, the tickets were sold for a fraction of the going rate we're talking about like a quarter or 50 cents instead of one or two dollars so the federal government was basically in competition with private enterprise here and offering these productions cheaper. Yeah, and it obviously didn't make a lot of theater producers really happy. And so in New York, did some of these companies, did they have their own sitting theaters? Yes, several actually rented out their own sort of home base theaters, you Mm -hmm. know, that they that had closed down, many of which had closed down because of the depression. The living newspapers, they were produced on stage at the Biltmore on 47th Street. The Experimental Theater was at Daly's 63rd Street Theater on the west side. The Negro Theater was out of the Lafayette Theater, which was a um, 1,500-seat theater up in Harlem at 132nd Street and 7th Avenue. And then the WPA also used theaters in Brooklyn and in the Bronx. But Tom, I can't, um, I can't get this living newspaper idea out of my head here. So can we explore this just, just a little bit further? How did they bring a newspaper to life on the stage? Um, with a lot of drama. The big concept was to dramatize current affairs, you know, the big issues of the day. So units around the country were developing dramas that tackled things like the farming crisis. Um, there was a show about the deplorable conditions in tenements in Chicago, for example, that was called Model Tenements. There was a show that was about STDs. Yikes! And what shows were specifically at the Biltmore here in the theater district? The New York unit uh, prepared the very first living newspaper production called 
Ethiopia. It was about Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia that had taken place the previous year in 1935. But here you have this conflict vividly playing out. I assume that they were portraying Mussolini unfavorably. Yes, or they were trying to. Um, because unfortunately, the, world, the word came down from Washington that the production should be yanked right before it was to open uh, because they were, after all, presenting an international leader in a, in a pretty unflattering light. So th- the federal government made it clear that they didn't want some play in New York City creating some kind of international incident. But, I mean, wasn't this also censorship in a way? Yes, even though um, there wasn't supposed to be any political interference or censorship in any of these programs. But in short, you know, the the production Ethiopia was yanked off the stage before it could open. And the head of the New York office, Elmer Rice, resigned after he gave the press a free preview in January of 1936. Now, if I could turn our attention kind of back up to this Harlem theater unit up Mm -hmm. at the Lafayette. Now, were they putting on shows that were intended for the neighborhood, meaning a largely African-American audience? Yes, and it was led, though, um, perhaps unsurprisingly at first, by a British-American actor and producer named John Houseman. Who was not African-American. No, and he split his troupe, his 700-person theater group, in half. Some tackled plays that were sort of centered around topical issues and others staged classics. The person he put in charge of that classics division was a 20-year-old named Orson Welles. Also uh, not a a black performer, but uh, someone we did recently discuss in our Pulitzer versus Hearst show. Yes. So he was putting on shows up here in the Harlem Theater unit, like Shakespeare? Uh, Yes, Shakespeare, in fact, with a twist. His first production was Macbeth with an all-black cast and set in the Haitian jungle. As Nick Taylor explains in his book, American Maid, quote, there would be voodoo priestesses instead of witches around a boiling cauldron and Napoleonic military costuming to replace Elizabethan gowns and tunics. Among those winning roles were an African witch doctor and his drummers who had been stranded in New York during a failed tour. Witch doctors on stage. Uh, Mm -hmm. What what was the reaction to all this? It was a complete sensation uh, when it opened on April 14th, 1936, and it would be referred to as Voodoo Macbeth. Taylor writes, quote, The curtain rose to the thunder of drums and an orgy of voodoo incantations. From the opening moment, the production's furious action, lush set, lavish costumes, and compelling performances mesmerized its audience. When the final curtain fell, it erupted in tumultuous cheers and applause. You know, that in that short film that I played at the beginning, they even included some footage of it. Of, of this production, um, you can see the stage ablaze with action and passion. But this isn't even Orson Welles' most famous production associated with the WPA. Of course, he would strike again. Oh, strike he would, Greg. He, in fact, he would stage a musical about a strike. A year after he opened Macbeth, Uptown in Harlem, he and Houseman both moved down to the classical theater and prepared to stage a musical drama 
that had been written by the composer Mark Blitzstein the year before, in 1936, called The Cradle Will Rock. The Cradle Will Rock was, it was an opera, it was kind of a labor opera, you know, about steel workers who were trying to unionize, um, about a character, a lead character, a poor woman named Mal, who turns to prostitution to support herself. Some hot button issues of the day. Yeah, and right, you know, here we are in 1937. It's a period of strikes and labor unrest. Um, And here, you know, the theater project was unafraid to bring this real life drama to the New York stage. And this was raising eyebrows. You know, people were debating, should the government support artists by taking sides um, and seeming to show a preference, you know, through these artistic works, basically showing a preference in in these big matters such as labor disputes. And this wasn't just a question that was being asked here in the theater project, but also in the other projects, in painting, in the writing project. Mm -hmm. These arts projects had conservative critics around the country and especially in Washington who were increasingly complaining about what they saw as a national, nationally funded arts program that was just teeming with left-leaning communist radicals. And there's nothing more dangerous than a bunch of radical artists. Or at least that was what they thought. That was their thought. And as labor unrest was growing in various industries around the country, as there were more strikes, there was unionization in many of the auto plants. Many in the theater project also went on strike after the government announced a huge budget cut in June of 1937, and slashed the theater budget, even prevented new productions from opening. Well, had the had the Cradle Will Rock had this had this production even opened by this point? No, but it had been months in development and in rehearsal. It was set to start previews at Maxine Elliott's Theater on 39th Street that month, that same month in June, and thousands of tickets had already been sold. And now, here on opening night, the police were actually blocking the performers from taking the stage. Wow. Did those members of the theater community, were they behind this show? Did they want it to open? Well, that's complicated because Actors' Equity, the union, was forbidding this production from performing on any other stage in the city. And the police here on opening night were blocking them from using that stage. So they did something tricky. That night, on June 16th, 1937, trapped in the old theater with ticket holders standing outside on the sidewalk, Wells and Houseman managed to call around and and actually rent out another theater, the Mm. 2,000-seat Venice Theater up at 58th Street and 7th Avenue. That is quite a feat to be able to (laughs) switch the entire theater on opening night. With patrons... Waiting outside the old theater, people literally ran, tickets in hand, nearly 20 blocks up Broadway to get to the 58th Street Theater. But didn't you say earlier that they couldn't perform on any other stage? Well, that's the sneaky part, because at the new theater up on 58th Street, the actors performed within the audience itself. They stood up on chairs. Um, they stood up on their seats, they, and they stood up in the balcony. But none of them actually took the stage. And, and thus, you know, they didn't violate any of the rules. <laughs> so the stage then was actually empty. Well, yes, except for Blitzstein, uh, the composer who accompanied the show 
from an upright piano on the stage. Um, he wasn't, after all, part of the cast. <laughs> it all added up to really an incredible night of theater. And Wells and Houseman would would run that production for another two weeks and then stage it again the following year privately in early 1938 as a production of their new theatrical endeavor called the Mercury Theater down on 41st Street. And then just months later, in July of 1938, Wells would debut his Mercury Theater on the air on CBS Radio, which was a live radio drama that included the infamous War of the Worlds program on October 30th of that same year. But rewinding to The Cradle Will Rock, this show has been reprised a number of times, including on and off Broadway. Here in a 1956 recording is Evelyn Lear singing Nickel Under the Foot with Mark Blitzstein at the piano. For an equally dramatic rendition of the story, not just the play, but the behind-the-scenes drama, there is the 1999 Tim Robbins-directed film called The Cradle Will Rock, featuring both Joan and John Cusack. (laughs) It is a fictionalized account, but yes, it is based on these events. But even still, the federal government was really cutting back on its funding on the theater project. But how did the federal theater project finally go dark? And what about the art and the writers project? We'll get to the rest of the story after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. The Works Progress Administration presents a program by the Federal Music Project under the direction of Dr. Nikolai Sokolov. Today we have the composer's Forum Laboratory, which was established in October 1935 in New York City by the Music Education Unit of the Federal Music Project. Its purpose is to bring composers, both known and unknown, and their auditors, into close relation through weekly public performances and discussions of their music. And that was another clip from WNYC of the Composer's Forum, which was performed uh, for their listening audience. Now, Tom, I'm going to start this section with a man named Paul Jackson. Paul Jackson Pollock. Oh, Jackson Pollock, known for his his drip paintings. Mm-hmm. One of the kings of, of abstract expressionism. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, Mr. Pollock was born in 1912 in Wyoming. He moved to New York in 1930 with his brother Charles to pursue a career in art. He moved here during the Great Depression. You know, Mm -hmm. it could be tough to live here. But the city does have this very, very unique group of concentrated talent and resources. What we know today is, of course, New York during this time was about to become the center of the international art scene in the mid-20th century. And so sure enough, Pollock comes to town. Uh, He gets accepted into the prestigious Art Students League on West 57th Street and learns under such masters such as Thomas Hart Benton. Which is a tricky move here in the 1930s. I mean, Mm -hmm. how is is young Jackson Pollock expecting to pay his bills? Well, fortunately, he was able to find work through the third federal program that we're going to talk about today, the Federal Art Project. A project that was intended to employ artists um, and designers in much the same way as the theater project did. Yes, um, but there were some significant differences. We should note that the Federal Art Project oversaw jobs for all kinds of art. Okay, so photography and painting, sculpting, even for a short time, Tom, glass blowing. Hmm. 
what was not featured in the project was another relatively young art form, motion pictures. But you can imagine if there was, if this program existed today, film would have its own division. Oh, absolutely. Along with, you know, television. I should also note that other New Deal programs outside of the WPA actually had art division hiring programs, including the Department of the Treasury, which also put artists to work creating art for public buildings. So post offices, federal buildings, those were commissions to artists, though, who already had work. So the idea being that you needed the highest quality most respected artists to make things for highly trafficked buildings. So all of those famous um, murals that we know were were painted in post offices during the Depression, those mm-hmm. were not part of this program. No, no. Because the WPA here was, was hiring workers on relief. So less established artists? Yeah, artists like Jackson Pollock. And in fact, other young starving artists who would then go on to become great new art stars from Lee Krasner, who Pollock would later marry, um, to names like William de Kooning and Mark Rothko. And it's interesting because Jackson first got his start in a program that we might not expect, which is the creation of murals. It's interesting that Pollock would start with murals because when you think of Pollock today, you think of those huge drip paintings that he painted by placing the canvas on the floor. They're huge like murals, but they're mm-hmm. they're not actually murals. No, no. But the mural program was actually easier to get into. And honestly, mural art during this period, during the mid-1930s, was actually kind of hot. Um, the program, in fact, this program here was actually directly inspired by the Mexican mural scene, mural scene of the 1920s, where the government paid artists to decorate public walls there in Mexico. But when you think of artwork that was created for the WPA, I at least immediately think of these murals because they are so large, so dramatic, and in such public spaces. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why they they were so popular. But they also had the potential to be controversial, very similar to things that you spoke about in the theater division. Murals could be very controversial. For instance, you know, just a few years earlier, over at that big construction site in Midtown that would become Rockefeller Center, there was a mural by Diego Rivera, which caused a total uproar there. Famously. And that was intended to be a sort of artistic centerpiece for the RCA building at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, yeah, so that mural was called Man at a Crossroads. It was painted by Rivera in 1933 and was widely acclaimed until newspaper reports revealed that it featured an image of Vladimir Lenin. So it was promptly seen as an anti-capitalist piece of propaganda and was destroyed. Which is complete insanity. Um, <laughs> although I'm sure because it was so so well publicized that I'm sure that this episode was hanging over the heads, you know, of, of WPA arts administrators um, when they were choosing new murals and new commissions. I'm sure that they were looking at this and probably then steering subjects away from such hot button issues. Yeah, these murals obviously were not meant to provoke. 
the creation of this mural program was not only to put people to work, but it was to promote a certain kind of like a healthy image. You know, often these murals featured vistas of agriculture and industry, very healthy, muscular people, historic landscapes. And to be clear, these WPA murals could be in really any building. They didn't need to just be in federal buildings. And there were hundreds in New York, which is just so wonderful. To, to give you just a couple local examples here, in, in 1938, the Gouverneur Hospital on the Lower East Side, that was the home of a 16-panel mural that was seven feet high that was created for the hospital's children's ward featuring Alice in Wonderland. So in this case, a hospital, which makes perfect sense. I mean, it's a great opportunity to kind of lift the spirits and spread some mm-hmm. joy. There are a lot of walls. <laughs> there are a lot, a lot of, of walls, walls to be painted. <laughs> um, actually, that same year, um, up at the Harlem Hospital Center, there were more murals that were actually created by several artists, all of them African-American artists, including Charles Alston, who became the WPA's first African-American supervisor for the Federal Art Project. Now, these murals at the Harlem Hospital Center were of all African-American subjects. And according to the New York Times, these murals were, quote, perhaps the first major federal government commission awarded to African-Americans ever. It's crazy. So by the 1930s, and there are murals being painted all over the city, um, but I just want to go back to Jackson Pollock for a second. Mm-hmm. So he so he really got a boost in his early New York career through this WPA mural project. Yeah, he stayed here in the mural project for a few months before transferring to another element of the art program, what we would call the easel unit, where artists were paid to paint canvases. Yeah, and how much were they getting paid? Was there a set salary for all the painters? Well, they got paid different salaries, but it was a salary. The average artist's salary on this program was $23.86, or about $650 to $700 a week today. And as you can imagine, it was actually quite difficult working as an artist in this rather structured environment. It's almost like a nine to five job or like getting paid for a nine to five job. Well, it's no, it's actually like a nine to five job. Although he worked from home down on East 8th Street, every day he would have to go into an office on 39th Street at 8 a.m. and literally punch in a time clock. That seems so impractical. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Strange. But then go back home to paint. Yes, they had to submit one canvas every one or two months, depending on the agreement, um, which doesn't really, you know, follow the strictures of human creativity. (laughs) I mean, and third, and probably like most crazy to me is artists were eventually were not even allowed to sign their own paintings. Hmm. So they had to remain anonymous. It's almost like they're in some great artistic assembly line. An assembly line which produced thousands and thousands of paintings for buildings all over the country, but a lot in the New York region alone. 
Now, the program, similar to music, similar to theater, you know, it was not only responsible for creating art classes and opportunities for art teachers to be hired across the country. Uh, you know, many schools developed an art program that they would continue because of the federal art project. But it also created an index of modern design, which is a really incredible and very, I think, surprising results of the WPA. This index of modern design was headed by a woman named Romana Javits of the New York Public Library, which, quote, hired unemployed commercial artists and illustrators to record systematically in watercolors the decorative arts of America's rural and urban regions. That sounds incredible. And one final person that I want to mention before we move on, uh, because she might be the most important person to the production of our podcast and website. Who's that? A woman named Berenice Abbott, who was employed by the WPA Federal Arts Program from 1935 to 1939 as a photographer, and in particular to create extraordinary documentary photographs under a specific project called Changing New York. And these images were first displayed at the Museum of the City of New York in 1937. And while some works that came out of the WPA arts programs here might have sort of faded into obscurity, mm -hmm. that could not be said for the, the works of Bernice Abbott. She captured truly some iconic images of New York City. Yeah, I mean, the what is so beautiful about these is it doesn't feel like there's, there's like an invisible art to them, right? They're very well crafted, but you feel like you're looking at an unblemished New York. Or she would later say, quote, like every other means of expression, photography, if it is to be utterly honest and direct, should be related to the life of the times. The pulse of today, the photograph to merit serious discussion must be directly connected with the world we live in. Well, turning the page rather quickly to the Federal Writers Project, uh, which, as its name suggests, was designed to provide employment for thousands of unemployed writers and editors and publishing professionals. And who was this project's editor-in-chief? Uh, the director of this project was Henry Alsberg, it was fascinating. He was born in New York. He attended Columbia and then Harvard Law. But then he chose a very colorful career, uh, working in Europe as a foreign correspondent. And he worked for a U.S. ambassador abroad, and he got into international relief projects, all before moving back to New York in the 1920s, where he started writing plays. And then he directed the Provincetown Playhouse in the village. Mm. So what exactly was the mission of this department? Well, of course, his primary goal was to employ writers. And that they did. Approximately 10,000 writers and editors and others in the publishing world were employed over the course of this project. The sort of artistic goal was to help provide a self-portrait of America. A written self-portrait of the United States, an autobiography. What form would this take? Uh, many different forms. Hundreds of different publications would be put out by the division, um, including books, some of which would become very popular. Although I would say that the most famous was a book series called The American Guides. Like travel guides? Yes, uh, travel guides to individual states and cities. Now, mind you, this was 
generations before the first Lonely Planet hit the bookshelf. <laughs> um, this was, you know, back in the 1930s, the main guides that were out there for tourists were the German-produced Bidecker guidebooks. And anyone who reads an E.M. Forrester novel knows what a Baedeker guidebook <laughs> is. All the characters seem to carry them as they're going about their vacation. And, and their country picnics and mm-hmm. such, yes. <laughs> so this project was organized into four, the 48 states. Each state had its own office that coordinated with Washington, along with a couple extras, you know, like the Alaska Territory. And they were tasked with putting out a guidebook for their state. Plus, there were additional city-level projects in the major cities, including, of course, New York City. So there was a WPA guide to New York State, but of course, Mm -hmm. there was obviously one for the city as well. That's right. Um, They also published a companion book of articles and photographs about the city called The New York Panorama, which is... Incidentally, not the same New York City panorama that's out in the Queens Museum today. This is a book. <laughs> and what was the what was the content of of these guides? Are they similar to a modern travel guide today? Yeah, like you know where to get the best cupcakes, you know, cronuts, <laughs> the best nightclubs. Well, actually, many yes, many of those things were covered. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, but there's a combination of background information. Um, historical information, sightseeing, roadmaps, tour agendas. Um, but, you know, by background, they went deep. You know, when I looked into the general information chapter uh, for the New York City Guide, um, which came out in 1939, they, they had entries on streets, accommodations, transportation, traffic rules, restaurants, shopping, amusements, museums, and then, and then the book is really a neighborhood-by-neighborhood neighborhood tour of the city from the perspective of late 1930s New York, which is really, it makes for incredible reading today. And how, how big were these? I mean, were they, were they something that you as a tourist could actually carry around with you? Uh, the New York God was 680 pages. So, I mean, you could technically carry it around, you know, but... Well, we can't criticize. Our book was about that long, and we wanted people to carry it around. So I guess um, I guess you just had to develop some nice biceps before yeah, you hit the I streets. Think, I think readers were, were stronger back then. <laughs> um, I flipped through, incidentally, I flipped through the hotel listings. They group them by neighborhood and then divide up the hotels by price category based on the cost of a single room with a private bath. Would you care to guess... The price range, Greg, for night nightly rates in New York. Oh my gosh, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, a dollar for a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How much would a room be? Um, well, let's say at the Knickerbocker Hotel. If you're in Broadway, go to the Knickerbocker on on West Forty Fifth Street. There, you could get a a, a room with a private bath for two dollars and fifty cents a night. Granted, it gets pricier up on Central Park. The the Essex House. Overlooking the park had rooms for $6 a night. That would be about in 2020 dollars, that's about $111 a night. Some truly depression era prices. So true, but I highly recommend if you have the chance spending a little time with any of these WPA guidebooks. They're really like time travel. And these were written and edited by WPA labor, right? Yes, they were researched and then written by individuals who had been hired by the WPA office. 
these books were also illustrated with maps and drawings, but also with photographs um, that had been taken by their own photographers or photographers who worked for the art program that you just mentioned. And these photos are incredible, and they are still available to browse today on the website of the New York City Municipal Archives Collections. And we will we'll link to that from our site. So the WPA guides, I think, are perhaps some of the best known printed material that came from this program. Mm -hmm. But of course, there were all different kinds of publications and, and books and different things. And they sent writers around the country, you know, very similar to these other programs, to collect folklore and, of course, to interview people and to, you know, get a lot of stories finally down on the page. Including interviews with formerly enslaved people in the United States. This project, the Slave Narrative Collection, which you can still access today on the Library of Congress website, the collection is called Born into Slavery, Slave Narratives from the Federal Writers Project, comprises more than 2,000 interviews and 500 photographs uh, that were taken between 1936 and 1938. And this is just an example of many different kinds of projects that were specifically focused in capturing all aspects of American history. Yes, in creating that self-portrait that we were talking about of America, researching the histories and interviewing Americans of all races and cultures. For example, the writer Zora Neale Hurston, who was born in Alabama. She grew up in Florida and then was educated at Barnard in New York, Columbia. She became a central literary figure in the Harlem Renaissance uh, before moving back to Florida in the early 1930s, where she would work for the Writers Project, collecting interviews of many ethnic communities, including African Americans and Arab Americans and Greek Americans and others. Hurston would later draw on her experience interviewing African-Americans in her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And that's just an example of maybe one of the better known books, classics, really, that have come out of the WPA project. But so many other wonderful writers were also employed by the Writers Project, including uh, Saul Bellow and Richard mm -hmm. Wright was also a WPA writer. And Ralph Ellison, Studs Terkel, John Cheever. So many writers came out of this program. So we're, we're at the end here. We've discussed four very important programs. And then they just sort of disappeared. Like, what happened to Federal One? Well, the, the fate of the Writers Project is very similar to the Theater Project. The politics of it got really ugly. You know, as with the Theater Project... Conservative critics, especially some very powerful members of Congress, objected to what they saw as communist and radical undertones in the writing that was coming out of this program and, and in the writers themselves. Essentially, they were objecting to taxpayers funding what they saw as radical works. So Congress, so Congress did get involved. Oh, and how? Yes, yeah, specifically the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which was led by a Texas congressman, a Democrat, named Martin Dyes Jr. Now, this committee held highly publicized hearings that blasted both the theater program and also the Writers Project for, for this supposed radical leaning. And to be clear, some of the people who were employed 
with these federal programs had at some point been communists. And they openly debated Lenin and Trotsky policies. I mean, they look, it shouldn't be any big surprise that many of the writers had very strongly held political conventions. I'm sorry, political convictions, you know. But as the director of both the writers and the theater program, um, Alsberg and Flanagan repeatedly pointed out, you know, WPA programs were open to all Americans, regardless of their political affiliations, because after all, this was America. But I imagine that's a rather tough sell um, to make to a population of Americans during a major depression. Yeah, especially when there's a really, you know, attention-grabbing politician leading the charge. Congressman Dyes would, you know, haul in Alsberg and Flanagan to testify in really contentious hearings. They were they would try to defend their projects, but really the deck was stacked against them. And in 1939, Congress slashed the budget of the entire project of the federal project number one and eliminated the theater project. And did the writer's project go on? Yes, but its authority was transferred from the federal government to the states where smaller programs then would continue at the state level until 1943. The federal art project also ended in 1943, having hired tens of thousands of people to create art across the country. Sadly, most of that art is gone today. What happened to it? Well, so 1943, our country has a lot of very different priorities. Uh, we're in the middle of a world war, and you know, preserving paintings was just not like a big deal to people. A lot of the art also dated very quickly. It didn't fit the national mood of America during the war. Then by the 1950, those, those art pieces that did survive were deemed outdated. And of course, the taste in art changed due, of course, to many of the people who had worked in the program to begin with. Like Jackson Pollock. Uh, like Jackson Pollock, you know, who went on to create his drip paintings after the war. But there are still some examples of murals in particular, even here throughout the New York area. It's a bit of a scavenger hunt, but you can find them. Some of these artworks have been placed into museums or have been taken by different owners. But if you do want to find some fine examples of New Deal art, New Deal murals, you can, for instance, go up to the Bronx Post Office um, on the Grand Concourse. DeWitt Clinton High School has a beautiful mural. And those Harlem Hospital murals, which I mentioned, are still around today in a brand new mural pavilion, which was constructed in 2012. And what about Alice in Wonderland on the Lower East Side? Uh, those murals also exist, although they've kind of been scattered around. Um, that hospital building was closed in the 1960s, but the murals can be found in various places. And finally, I do want to say that the largest WPA mural ever created for the program is also with us today, and it can be found at the Marine Air Terminal, painted by James Brooks in 1942. And of course, the Marine Air Terminal is located at LaGuardia Airport, which was also built by the WPA. We want to give a special thank you to Andy Lancet from WNYC and to Kenneth Cobb, 
from the New York Municipal Archives for providing us with some of the clips that you heard today. Check out our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to see even more examples of all four of these federal arts programs. Thank you again to those who support us on Patreon.com, where for just a small donation a month, you can help the Bowery Boys podcast stay on its regular schedule, digging up these types of stories for you and keeping the lights on here around these parts. We couldn't be making the show without you. So so a sincere thanks to all of the patrons who have joined us at Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys. There wouldn't be a Bowery Boys without you. To thank you uh, for your generosity, we produce some extra patron-only audio feeds. You'll have immediate access to those when you sign up with Patreon, including the Bowery Boys Movie Club and also the Bowery Boys Takeout. We want to extend an extra special thank you to supporters Pamela S., Elisa G., Beverly R., Miriam T., Mary D., Anne G, Kara V, and Robin. Thank you all very much for your support. So thank you for joining us on this epic two-part look at New York and the New Deal. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.